Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. I, the red the red light is on next to the recorder, and the thing is bouncing in the area that we want it to bounce. Is that is the timer that's... clicking? It's like twenty twenty one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. six twenty two, six twenty three, six twenty four. Okay, so you've been six twenty five, six twenty seven, six twenty eight, six twenty nine. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO, editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined as always by assistant editor Andrew Keats. Hello, Andy. Scott, how you doing, pal? Pretty well, thank you. Sarah Libby, managing editor. Hello. Hello. Coming up on the show today, it's the last few weeks of Mayor Kevin Faulkner's administration, and he's dropping some bombs on his way out. See if he can clear a path to the governor's office. We'll talk about how real that is or isn't. And San Diego Unified Superintendent Cindy Martin gave the state of the school district this week. It's going well, she said. It's all good. Georgia, good to know. Georgia, Georgette Gomez's term on the city council is also ending. Her political career extinguished as fast as it exploded. We'll talk about how that went. And two women want to take her place as city council president. On the second half of the show, we talked to city councilwoman Monica Montgomery Stepp about why she wants to do it and how she can use her power in office. But first, this week, Mayor Kevin Faulkner gave his final Kev talk. That's the roast He's been giving every year at the downtown partnership. You remember that year Bob Vilner did it and like everybody was like horrified. Like it was just didn't go well. I don't remember what the jokes were, but they were apparently not as well received as the slams that the Kev does or whatever. The downtown partnership changes out their chair uh, person every year. And then they have this uh, satirical slam fest where Mayor Kevin Faulkner gets up. All right. He took a, a, a couple shots at people, city council members, others. He took a, he took a couple shots at me. He, kn- he knows, he knows how much it means to you to have that yeah. happen every, every once in a while. So I was he does gonna, it every, yeah. he does it every other year so that like you can be very sad in the years that it doesn't happen. But then <laughs> like, like, you know, like a, like a, like a little boy picking on a, a little girl in the schoolyard. When we closed the beach access, some people said I banned surfing. And by some people, I mean one person, voice of San Diego, Scott Lewis. Every day I opened up my Twitter feed, and there was Scott complaining. I reopened the beaches just to shut him the hell up. And immediately after he could surf, Scott's attention turned to his second highest priority, getting his kids out of the house. So Superintendent Cindy Martin, for all that is good and holy, just open the damn schools so Scott Lewis quits his yapping. I mean, I'll kind of take it, like, right? Like, be the guy that wants (laughs) beaches open and schools open. I've just never heard such, like, joy and exuberance in his voice is when he's like making 
fun of important people that he knows in his inner circle in a private gathering. Yeah, no. This is like a real, that was just like a joy. Oh, no. Joy in that. It's clearly his favorite thing. Yeah, no, he loves dumping on people in this. It's good. It's good stuff. But uh, you're right. Yeah, I I love it. It's fine. I love being, (laughs) I, I love that he referred to Voice of San Diego content so much. He, in fact, he brought up, Jesse Marks is reporting about the streetlights. In all seriousness, do not drink and drive because there are no DUI checkpoints this evening. For one night only, the city defunded the police. (laughs) Don't worry. The smart streetlights are still watching you. You didn't think Kev really turned them off, did you? Kev sees all. Kev sees all. Mass surveillance? You gotta get a mass surveillance joke in. Lol. <laughs> but he also had a couple shots at the governor. He talked about how you remember this when he wanted to be TV star with the governor. So the governor had his daily press conference during the height of the pandemic, where he'd announced the latest whatever, and then the uh, county had its own you know press conference where we talk about its latest stuff. And you know, mayor is like, well, I, I I'm important. I should do that. So he he riffed on that a little bit about his own time in the sun and the spotlight with that. I had the perfect spot in the daily lineup of coronavirus updates. First, of course, Governor Newsom would go on at noon to give us all the bad news. Like when we entered phase one of stage two and the fourth reopening plan with new guidelines for the modified stay-at-home owner that required a self-attestation, which moved us from the color-coded tears to 50 shades of gray. Super clear, brother. And of course, he delivered it in a very tight three-hour window. Gov slam there, huh? So obviously, this comes in context. He's been, uh, the, the mayor has been stepping up his criticism of the governor, hit him hard uh, in, and got himself a, a column in the UT or in the, in the LA Times about his tweet where he said, the governor can go out to eat. Uh, you know, governor sends his kids to schools, but you can't. Uh, he seems to be trying to set up a run for governor. The question is, A, is he too scared to announce he's going to run for governor? Or B, is he terrified to announce he's going to run for governor? Wow. Mm-hmm. Talk about slams. You get, you hey, oh. get, get your Get your retribution there for his... Uh, yeah, for they'll his never let go. me emcee one of those things again because I, I, my slams weren't good, but his slams are good. Yeah, uh, I, I would say, I mean, it, that tweet was, to me, a culmination of a few months worth of uh, Faulkner not so subtly running against the state of California, not not just Gavin Newsom, but, but really the whole state. And I think you could draw those all together if you wanted to go back through them um but i I mean i do think if nothing else he's right that gavin newsom has absolutely stepped in one and on a topic that will i think like really resonate with people in a way that typical politics don't i mean it, it requires no policy to understand understanding to identify what is obviously rank hypocrisy and elitism it's just like such a spectacular own goal. Yeah. Like it's like one of those things like with so many things of 2020, like I'm not sure if you could have scripted it better that it was like at the French laundry, of yeah. course. 
Um, delicious, by the way. I hope you had the uh, that squab. Yeah, you didn't you um, like you planned for like years to go to that place. Oh yeah, and it's just it's it just was, like a place it, he stops by. <laughs> He's like. Yes, it was like the culmination of my life's dreams and I, goals and achievements. <laughs> I would <laughs> to say eat dinner though, there once. I would say though, it's it's less like an own goal because an own goal is uh, an accident. Those are, uh, skilled soccer players yeah. are attempting yeah. to do one thing and then accidentally shoot the ball into their own goal. This is more like Shaquille O'Neal missing a free throw. Like, this is who Gavin Newsom is. And and I think that's why it's so damaging. This is not a departure from his public persona to date. It is an encapsulation of his public persona to date. It's exactly, he just gave them exactly what they wanted. Exactly what they wanted. Like, Kevin Faulkner has been waiting and salivating for Gavin Newsom to go to the French Laundry, and that's exactly what he did. Yeah, and so the politics are clear. Like, the, the a, a mailer that goes across the state that says, you know, he gets to send his kids to school, he gets to eat the French Laundry, you don't. It's powerful stuff. But aside from the actual politics is the, like, is the bad messaging of our public health crisis, too. Like, like it's the hardest part of this entire experience for our family, other than not not having schools, has been this weird dissonance with the rest of our local uh, friends and and neighbors and friends of our our kids' friends uh, who don't follow the rules, right? Like it's just really hard to live when you don't know, uh, you know, what language everybody's speaking about, what they're willing to do. And then when the governor who's doing the rules doesn't do it, it's really hard to get everybody on board with collective action for this effort. And so it's just, yeah, he stepped in it. Now, does Governor Kevin Faulkner ring? Like, it's very hard for me to picture how this goes. So, okay, so say Newsom's uh, popularity starts plummeting in a real scaled magnitude way. Even so, Mayor Kevin Faulkner would have to raise a ton of money for a statewide campaign. And then He'd have to get through a primary. And I think if there, there's going to be a lot of President Trump alkalites running, Travis Allen, for example, people like that who are going to make a big deal about immigration, big deal about some real red meat topics that Kevin Faulkner is on the left side of. Can he get through a primary? I don't. I always think that his challenge is more like the challenge of the Republican Party in California in general, which is just like, Okay, so you don't like Gavin Newsom and you don't like restrictions or whatever. Like, what do you want to do? What is your plan? And that is something I think Kevin Faulkner is like uniquely ill suited to articulate. And I couldn't tell you what it is that he wants to do or what he stands for. The The piece of this that I've been kind of struggling with is that every time a lot of these people, um, leaders are, are called out for their various gatherings, whether they're at a conference in Maui or they're like the House delegation having a welcome dinner um, or even, you know, like Nancy Pelosi getting a haircut, they all say like, well, I was following all of the regulations and I think for the most part they're right I mean it seems like Gavin Newsom maybe was lying or like misleading people about the extent to which it was outdoors or the extent to which it um had the correct amount of people or whatever but um 
I, you know, I do think there's something to be said for leaders should lead. And if we're asking people to give up their Thanksgiving dinners or whatever, um, that maybe you should all be in your house alone and, and not going to these things, even if they are technically within regulations. Because I mean, like, you know, for how much Gavin Newsom stepped in it, Kevin Faulkner was still criticizing him from a gathering of rich business elites. Like he wasn't making this criticism in his home alone. He was also at an event with important people, much like the governor was. Well, I mean, I think the big thing for me was the outside. I remember when the story broke and um, and I was like, well, I mean, he's outside. He shouldn't be gathering with other people necessarily like in, in that way, but he was outside. It seems like it wasn't that many people outside. And people brought it up and I'd be like, well, it's not outside. It's not that inconsistent. And then when the photos came out and it was clearly not outside, like that's that was to me like, that was when I was, I just felt like you, that was bad. Yeah, that was, I mean- I mean, it's one thing to to lie. Yeah. I'm saying that like there there are situations in which people do seem to be, like be technically following the rules, even if it's like incredibly bad right. optics, where it's just like, well, we spaced the tables seven feet apart, so we're fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the central question is like, uh, I, I I'll drive it back though. Like, do we think Kevin Faulkner is gonna run for governor? Well, so I think his like his re- resume suits him for it in a way that like John Cox was never going to be a formidable challenger. He he is genuinely the mayor of the second largest city for for a 7-year period. That that will be impressive in a way that that none of the other would-be contenders are probably going to be able to compete with just in terms of ballot designation. Um I I think Sarah's right though that's like what a like what is the case? What 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 is the case for uh Republican governance of California, which I, I think just like the case for Republican governance in San Diego County has not been articulated. And it has not been articulated during a seven-year period in which Mayor Faulkner was the mayor. So what if he hasn't done it here, or if he hasn't laid a clear roadmap here, I, I don't know why we would expect he'd be able to do it for the entire state. Um, I mean, after all, it's a seven-year period in which the Republican Party has just bled elected seats. Um, so I, I'm skeptical. For that reason, I'm skeptical that he would actually take the step to to announcing. But I do think for the next year or so, we'll continue to see moments like this that allow him to be positioned as an uh, like a, a, a poll in opposition to Gavin Newsom, um, which will keep enough heat around the conversation for him to keep the option open, but I don't think it's an option he'll ultimately exercise. Yeah, I think he just likes being like the guy, like the guy who could take on Gavin Newsom if somebody was going to do it. And then once you cross into that, like I'm actually running and up against really steep odds, that seems a lot less fun than like always being on the tip of everyone's tongue of like, well, and, and remember, again, remember Kevin Faulkner's entire political history, going back to when he ran for student president in at San Diego State. He he has succeeded when the people ahead of him fail. And, you know, Gavin Newsom uh, going to get dinner or whatever, like there he is. He's the kind of guy who can easily step in something even bigger 
And if 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 the mayor can be the guy just waiting, like he could it could fall on him. He knows that very well. What's got you down, Kev? Oh, nothing. It's it's just I'm so used to being the Kev and now that I'm doing my last Kev talk, I don't know what I'm gonna do when I'm turned out. Well, you could always run for supervisor. I don't live in Poway, Mr. Mayor. You know there's no Republicans west of the five. And besides, downtown is, it's just special. I'm really gonna miss this place. Well, you know, you've still got some time left. Maybe, maybe all you need to do is take a long walk. A long walk down a downtown road. I think you're right. Yeah, I'm gonna go downtown to the urban core. Gonna camp till I can't no more. I'm gonna go downtown to the urban core. Camp till I can't no more. I got elected way back when Filner got sacked. And Nathan Fletcher was a newly minted Democrat. Came in with a plan, yo. Wrote a couple memos. Well, there was a, another speech this week we followed. That was from... Superintendent Cindy Martin from the San Diego Unified School District. Uh, she gave her annual the state of our district speech. So uh, we, I, you know, I was actually told by Will Huntsbury not to watch it. <laughs> like to, he said, please don't watch it. It will not help you uh, do well in life. So uh, I am, I, I actually have respected that, although I did catch the clip that sounded around the district of her uh saying what the state of the district was. And since the state of San Diego Unified is always equal, the state of our students, the state of our district tonight is unstoppable. More than there's, any generation- There's just, there, you know, the one thing about that is that it did stop. Like in-person instruction halted violently. <laughs> like it just it, really- It literally stopped. <laughs> yeah. But metaphorically, though, it carries on. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I don't even know if that's true. <laughs> yeah. In our imaginations, the, it's we're going faster was, than ever. <laughs> there was a really good piece in the Atlantic uh, this week about how, like, um, the pandemic has like finally ended the Kardashians' reign because they've always like straddled this line of like relatability with like obscene wealth that you could never attain mm -hmm. and it's like doesn't work in this moment and like cindy martin to her credit you know has like really powerful skills of like optimistic oratory and you know like past district speeches she's like put on ruby slippers and clicked her heels together or whatever and like i just don't think that doing that in this moment really hits quite the same yeah that, that, great point like by the way she really did wear ruby slippers right yeah no that literally happened <laughs> so no but that's that's ex that's exactly it like this is a moment where hundreds of thousands of parents and and kids are just like really stressed out and it's really hard and to like not like live with that for a minute and kind of like just engage with that for a little while you know even if it's to say like hang in there for a little longer or you know whatever we've got plans in place we're working like to to just kind of like 
yeah, exactly. Sort of snow over like, well, this is, you know, actually everything's fantastic. It was just a really like hard sentiment to get around. It's like gaslighting almost. Like I know what she's trying to do. It's her whole thing. And she wants to like pump people up, but like it's not going well, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I was downtown uh, earlier. I had to pick something up at the office. And it was like one of these acute moments of observation where I was like in my car wearing a mask and I glanced over and there like a parking lot had been retrofitted into a COVID, like an emergency COVID testing facility. There were no cars on the road. You know, anybody that was on the street had a mask on. And these are all mundane sites these days, but there was this specific moment where it like set into me just momentarily how bizarre life is and how abnormal it is and i think it's worth like in this moment not putting on a good face every once in a while and not trying to tell people that that they're that we that we can like persevere above it all <laughs> i mean i don't know what i'm actually making the case for here i don't I'm not, i don't think that she should get up there and like just and just be sad but like it is not the case that that the district has proven that it is unstoppable right now. Very bad things are happening to students and families in San Diego Unified School District right now. And it's having profound effects that we'll be dealing with for generations. Um, it's probably a good time to talk about those instead of just pretending that it's a PR crisis. Well, one of the things uh, Will Hunsbury wrote about that in his weekly or biweekly piece, uh, The Learning Curve, he sends out to folks. And it was about that they, one of the things they touted was that 4,000 appointments for students to go on campus and get special services for those students who have really fallen behind, uh, who had, you know, special needs services or who, uh, you know, were otherwise just really falling behind. But they also said that about 3,000 students were getting those services. That means that Basically, three thousand students have gotten one point what one, one point three appointments, and so you know they had at this time been talking about up to twelve thousand getting those services. So three thousand students out of a hundred and what twenty thousand students. I mean, it's just a to to talk about that as like a major part of a reopening is just it's just not there for a lot of people, and so I think you know I. I um, I think that to your point, Andy, there is something actually more calming when somebody expresses what you what you're really feeling, you know, like what you what you're going through and says like, well, here's a way that we might be able to like get out of it or what to look forward to or something like that. And it just never helps. Like when the president tweeted today, like, oh, there's some really great treatment for COVID out there that I got, for instance. And it's like, yeah. It'd be great if everybody got that, you know, <laughs> like, thanks for, you know, telling us all these things that are out there. Like, and so uh, there is one interesting thing happening. The state, um, uh, one of the, the leaders of the education committee at the state legislature, uh, Patrick O'Donnell, I think is his name. He talked about um, how weird and bad it is that so many private schools are open while all these other schools are closed and they need to deal with that. Now, a lot of people interpreted that, that they're going to maybe try to push schools to open more. I think it could go the opposite. The school districts, major school districts, 
sent that letter to the governor saying they need to see equity across the board for everybody in the same way. Like we can't have some schools open, some not. And to me, it was a not subtle sort of point that they should close everything, not that they should open everything. Yeah, I, I think my discomfort with it is just that it didn't sound like a rousing call for resilience in the face of a challenge. It sounded much more like a refusal to acknowledge how hard people are having. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the uh, people who got a lot of the slams from the Kev the other night was Georgette Gomez, city council president. She's now just has a few more weeks as city council president. And then we don't know what's in store for her for her next job, for her new uh, act, or whether she'll stay in, in public affairs uh, after this. But there are, uh, so I, I think, Andy, you did a piece this week that was uh, really good about uh, her rise and fall. What really stood out for you? This is an incredible story. She got elected city council in 2016. Uh, by 2018, she's council president. She's maybe the one or two most powerful Democrats in the city. And and now she's going to be without a political job, uh, at least immediately. So what, what stood out for you when you really dug into the activists and the data about what um, what happened to her career? I think what stood out to me was that she had clearly suffered losses on like multiple fronts. The activist class that you would have presumed to be her, like a- alongside her, uh, especially in, in the race that she was running against. She was running against Sarah Jacobs, a uh, self-funded candidate who was able to self-fund because she's inheriting tremendous wealth from her grandfather, who's one of the richest men in San Diego County. Um, it seems tailor-made for a person who comes from community organizing in the the city's poorest communities like Georgette to be able to uh, consolidate the entire activist class around her in a race like that. And she didn't, she got, there were a lot of those people had had bad experiences with her on the city council for one reason or another and chose to align with Sarah Jacobs. But it was also the voters, like her own constituents, the district nine the portion of District 9 that overlapped with the 53rd Congressional District, she lost. It wasn't like she didn't run up big numbers. She lost outright. Sarah Jacobs took between 50 and 58% of the vote in every precinct in District 9 uh, that was also in the 53rd District. Um, and so I I just, I thought it was a, a case of a candidate whose uh, performance in multiple different measurements did not live up to what you would have expected just by looking at their biographical profile. One of the things that came up in response to your piece, again, I highly recommend it, was that, hey, you didn't, you know, the, the only thing that really matters is that Sarah Jacobs had a ton of resources. I remember I made a similar point and you guys jumped quick at it and said like, hey, it's actually not that. Georgia Gomez seemed to have enough resources to compete. That old saying I always work with is like, you don't need the most money to win political races, you need adequate, you need enough uh, resources. What was your take on that? Yeah, exactly what you said. She had enough money to, to win that race. It, she, was, she was outspent, yes. Um, it was, and it wasn't particularly close, but she had ample money 
to to win that race. She was on TV early. She was on in, on TV. She had TV ads up as you know in in August, same time Sarah Jacobs did. Um, she had large financial support from the Labor Council and outside groups. Um, she that this was that was not the story of this race i don't think uh she had enough money to win and plenty of candidates who uh were outspent by their opposition won their elections in this race like four of them on the san diego city council you can win elections while being outspent yeah and she also had other things going for her she had really high profile endorsements about as high profile as you can get with you know AOC and Bernie Sanders, and she had, you know, time in office to give her name recognition, which is something Sarah Jacobs doesn't really have. Um, and so it, I think you did a good job of drawing out, like, it, it couldn't have just been the money. It had to have been policies. You know, Sarah Jacobs didn't really help her in terms of, like, giving her any moderate positions she could seize on and say, I'm the more progressive candidate. And then, you know, her actual record um, also didn't seem to do her many favors. Um, she didn't have a lot of huge wins that she could point to on the city council, even with a supermajority. Um, she made compromises on certain priority legislation um, that she wasn't able to get through the way that she envisioned. And so I think it was both the, you know, Sarah Jacobs didn't really make a lot of missteps or moderate her positions in a way that favored Georgette. And then Georgette didn't really do herself any favors either. Yeah. Georgette had a, a better ballot title. She had run in that district. People had in your, you know, in a portion of that district, people in that district had voted for her. She's in the news all the time as council president. She's in the news all the time on MTS. So yeah, Sarah Jacobs had a financial advantage. Georgette Gomez had substantial other political advantages and the the financial comparison does not include uh party spending from the democratic party every th this and this was a overwhelmingly democratic uh district and every democrat in that district received multiple pieces of mail that had a picture of georgette gomez as their endorsed candidate um so sure you know, Sarah Jacobs had a lot more money. That was an advantage. I think the biggest reason it's an advantage is she didn't have to spend her time fundraising. And Georgette Gomez did have to spend her time fundraising to, to even have enough money to, to compete. But in the end, she did have enough money to compete and she wasn't able to. And I think the reasons for that are about her, her, about her record in office. And so I think that that was more interesting to talk about. Well, there are two uh, women who want to take that role as council president. Uh, Monica Montgomery Step and Dr. Jen Campbell, who represents the sort of um, uh, coastal districts in the city of San Diego, and uh, and then of course uh, Monica Montgomery Step represents uh, southeastern San Diego on the city council. It's become a strangely public race. Uh, there's been a lot of public statements. The Democratic Party uh, just uh, took a step of endorsing Monica Montgomery Step for uh, that. Ah, uh, not endorsing. Support. Okay. Support. So What's the difference? Bylaws, their bylaws outline a procedure and process for any endorsement, any candidate endorsement. Goes through a committee, needs to be uh, docketed and agendized in a certain particular way. This did not go through that process, and it didn't go through that process because this is not a public election. Uh, it's a legislative decision, so it went through the process that it would go through if they were going to take a position of support or opposition 
for any sort of other legislative decision that the city council was going to make. So uh, okay. not an endorsement, not an endorsement. Well, uh, surprised uh, more people aren't involved in local politics considering <laughs> how easy it is to follow some of these things. Uh, this is a lengthy debate on Monday night between, uh, 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 you know, like Francine Busby, the ex-party chair, was making the case that this was an out-of-order uh, ah. Even even motion because this had had not gone through the endorsement process and the response was, well, of course, but that's because this isn't an endorsement. Got it. Fascinating. Well, so th- again, it's been public. There's, uh, you know, um, I think there's some pushback about whether it should be public, but you know, it it also shouldn't be confidential. We have discussions. Should Nancy Pelosi be the Speaker of the House? We have discussions all the time about policies that the City Council should pass, and so. Uh, it makes sense for it to be something public. But uh, we asked both candidates if they wanted to come in and talk about uh, this race. And Monica Montgomery was the one who did. So you talked to her. Anything you want to say before we hand that over? I think the thing I was most interested in talking about, and we get to it right off, is 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 why she particularly wants the job. Uh, I, I think the, the recent history of the city council, um, Georgette Gomez uh, in particular, demonstrates that it it hasn't actually been a great place to either get policy through or to elevate your profile. So I can't speak for um, Monica. Maybe she had a really poignant answer about why this is actually a super dope job that she wants specifically. Um, But, you know, I was looking back to your write-up of how that Dem non-endorsement support vote went Mm -hmm. down. Um, And there was kind of a comment uh, from Shirley Weber that stuck out to me, which is that like the Democratic Party doesn't normally involve itself in situations in this way. And she was saying, well, that's a good thing. We need to like stop endorsing this status quo. And that is something that I think a lot of black women have been having a conversation about within the party for the last two years. Um, Tasha Williamson, you know, during the endorsement discussions for the mayor's race was saying this party has left black women behind and needs to do things differently. And Shirley Weber herself has been part of a lot of statewide conversations just about black women kind of not getting their due um, as leaders within the party. And so I think maybe when you broaden it out that way, like maybe being council president isn't all that fun or glamorous and hasn't had a good track record um, for the people who've had that role over the last several years. But I do think there's something bigger brewing when it comes to black women looking to take on some of these leadership roles in whatever body they're serving in and wanting to get more recognition in the party for their efforts. Yeah, and I guess the same thing would apply to Jen Campbell. Like, why would you want it? You know, what do you you think you're going to get past there? Like, what, uh, you know, and and, um, obviously... uh, uh, there's, there's yeah, just no one takes the job. It's just, it's it's yeah. like one of these one of these like assignments on some like poorly attended border commission that just like has yeah. vacancies all time. The San Diego Labor Council also uh, did uh, vote to support Monica Montgomery's step as well. All right. Well, let's hear your conversation with Monica Montgomery's step. Uh, I 
you know, every day is an adventure in, in, in 2020. Um, but, but here we are, and you are in the midst of something of a first. Uh, well, I guess people could disagree about how much of a first it is, but something of a first in, in that you are actively campaigning to be the San Diego City Council's next council president. Um, I think the place I want to start, if you, if you don't mind, is tell me why you want this job uh, so badly. And I ask because in the short history that I've been covering City Hall, it has not been an especially good place to carry a policy agenda. It has not been an especially good place to elevate one's political career. Um, there are some exceptions, but for the for the most part, it actually seems to to be something of a of a burden. And so I wonder why did you not only decide that you wanted the job, but you wanted it so much that you sort of took the the course to get there in a new direction and, and made it all very public. So in listening to you, I have to think about why I ran in the first place um, to represent District Four. And at the time that I ran, I felt that uh, the community did need better representation. And I was working at the ACLU and I was doing pretty good and, uh, you know, had a less, much less stressful life. And I knew what it was like, even from a glimpse, as because of my staffing, three different elected officials, what it was to be an elected official. Um, and I decided to do it anyway, because I felt an obligation to my community. So now fast forward to um, being a senior council member in a few days after only, it hasn't even been two years yet, and taking on something that I have personally experienced has not been great for my predecessors uh, in particular. And taking that on, taking the bull by the horns and saying, you know, I want to do this. And it's for the same reasons. It really is around service to this city. You know, I am really proud of how effective we've been able to be in these last almost two years. And the the effectiveness comes from knowing how to get policy through this system, uh, knowing how to push back uh, with a system that is not always welcome and open to your ideas. And that is the role that I think the council president uh, should serve. And with five new council members, it will be extremely important. And the last thing I want to say about this loaded question <laughs> is that you know, from the way that 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 I have started this um, in in involving residents, getting residents feedback about something that has traditionally not been um, been uh, open to everyday residents, everyday people, activists, community leaders. I think that is an indication, you know, of the fact that I am not afraid to make this council presidency work for the, the residents of San Diego and work for the district. And so, you know, it is daunting. Um, when I was deciding whether or not to do it, I was, you know, I, I really do sleep well in all of this. That's my saving grace. And I did not sleep well at that time because I understand um, what I am potentially walking into. And I feel that I'm ready for it. 
When you ran for city council, as you say, it was only two years ago, and uh, the incumbent in District 4 where you were running was then the council president. And one of the things that your supporters, her critics, said a lot was that she had um, allowed constituent services to lag, and many people believed it was because, as council president, she had to spend so much time thinking about citywide issues and the business of the council. Are you not at all concerned that your your uh, your you know your ability to provide direct attention to the things that are going on in District Four will be undermined by all the responsibilities you would have as council president? So first of all, I have to um, bring in our current council president into this conversation just because she uh, was able to uh, kind of expand the office in a way where there were more positions concentrated on those city-wide uh, issues and that uh, responsibility to the city and the docket. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, I would be walking in with that is an advantage that my predecessors did not have. But also, you know, I have to say that I have extremely hardworking uh, staff, extremely hardworking. And we have not lost that focus, even while passing uh, citywide uh, you know, legislation that would benefit the city overall and working with coalitions that, you know, we have District 4 residents within those coalitions, uh, but not only District 4 residents. And so in all of that, we have, in, you know, been able to continue our focus on the community because we are dedicated and because Again, it goes back to the approach that we're talking about now, allowing the residents to have a say in this. My approach is completely different, and I think it's going to to benefit, uh, provided that I am the next council president, I think it's going to benefit the district and the residents citywide because I'm dedicated. I know who brought me to this party. I've been very clear about that uh, from the very beginning, uh, even with those who don't live in District 4, and we still have been able to garner support from people around the entire city um, and also from elected officials uh, that represent different parts of the city and different parts of the county. And, and you know, again, it is it is taking a chance. That's why I stayed up late those nights thinking about how we were going to get through this. I am still dedicated to District 4. I am the District 4 representative. It is on me to remember that. Um, and to have that and take on fully that dual responsibility of council president. Some of the issues you've championed uh, in the last two years and issues that are sort of newly on the table um, include, you know, properly implementing the uh, new oversight board created by Measure B um, and also the, the budget questions around SDPD and potentially reallocating some of that budget that came up um, this summer, um, which you did not vote to do, um, and you've talked it since then about the importance of, you know, examining the city's budget and coming up with a closer understanding of, of what SCP, how SCPD is spending its money and how it p- could potentially be reallocated. Would those efforts not be better served by um, being the chair of the Public Safety Committee staying focused on carrying those policy items and not having to worry about docketing short-term vacation rental legislation, not having to worry about 
when you're going to go through the franchise fee agreement, all the other things that the city has to do, you know, specific issues that only pertain to District 5 that now you'll have to be the person responsible for getting on the budget. Um, for, for these sorts of policy areas that you've, that you've always been associated with, uh, does this mean that they'll get less attention? I don't think so. Um, again, it goes back to what I said, it's being dedicated and seeing all of these issues through. And I also just want to say how important it is to have a strong council president. Um, when I came into City Hall, I was dedicated uh, to doing what I said I would do on the campaign trail. And a major part of that was having finally uh, an independent commission on police practices that had subpoena power. That was my uh, one of my uh, major goals at that time. I had to sit down with our council president and with the city attorney's office and go through what that looks like. And had I not had that support, it would have been much harder to get us to the finish line. As you know, it already took us a year and a half. Um, and so without a strong council president, a lot of these things wouldn't happen anyway. And, you know, so we have to evaluate that because the, the council president, the way I see it, we have the who, those are the council members. We have the what, those are our policies. Uh, those are our initiatives, but we have the how. The how is through the council president's office. And that's one of the most important parts. And so, you know, two years in, did I see this coming? Absolutely not. Uh, do I know the history? Absolutely. I've witnessed it for myself. And in that, I have learned um, that we have to be diligent. We have to be focused. We have to be efficient. We can't be lazy. And that is just a dedication, you know, that I that I have to uh, the district, to the city, to my uh, new colleagues, because I witnessed a, a council president that supported me. And I want to offer that same support. It is really hard to get things through the city. Um, and until you've experienced that, it's kind of hard to grasp that. But I want to be there uh, in that role to to provide that how. That how, how do we move these policies through the city? Um, and, I, I, and I will not neglect uh, or hold off on what I have uh, done and what I need to finish. I listened to the uh, Democratic Party's uh, meeting on Monday night where they uh, ultimately the Central Committee voted to support your candidacy for council president. Um, there were some procedural questions uh, that came up a lot over that night that I don't know that we need to get into. But one thing I did hear a lot of from your supporters um, and that I'm interested in hearing your response to is the idea that um, you as a uh, black woman are running against Jen Campbell, a, a white woman, and that, um, you know, this was not implied as much as said explicitly that um, if people in that party believe that black lives matter, then they need to, uh, their, their deed needs to follow their word and by voting to support your candidacy. Do you think that's fair? Is that a fair framing that, that if people uh, do feel like they are, they support the Black Lives Matter movement, that they support um, these things that they that they need to vote for you. Is that is, is that reasonable? I think that we have to look at this as who we believe is the most qualified. 
and who has shown that. And I am a black woman. And in a time like this, where you're looking at a qualified black woman uh, for this seat that has proven time and time again, my dedication uh, to this job and have the record to show for it, folks shouldn't have to say trust black women, uh, but they'd have to say it now. And so uh, I like to work off of the merits and that's why I believe I'm the best person for this position. But we have to understand that this is what the community is looking at. That folks that were, you know, marching uh, with us in Martin Luther King parades, folks that were on, you know, a part of the protest or showing their support through hashtags or whatever it was, now are backing off from that when it comes to the issue of power. And, and that is, I think, what is behind uh, the hashtag, what is behind that framing is we can see what we are looking at. And so, you know, I don't, I, I want to be, you know, council member Monica Montgomery Stepp, who is wholly qualified to be the council president. And I uh, absolutely lead with that. And I am also a black woman. Um, and that perspective, in addition to the qualifications, will really is at the forefront of uh, the time that we are in, the struggles that we are facing, the inequities uh, that uh, I am very well aware of uh, through personal experience and perspective. And at the end of the day, the, the leadership that will make this a, a, a better city for all of us. I would love to keep going, but uh, you've got a busy day. You've got, after all, you've got a council presidency campaign to, uh, to run right now. Uh, so we'll uh, adhere to the time and, and let you go. But thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded at least in part in my garage in San Diego. Keep up with all of our big stories and political coverage with The Morning Report. Get that at VOST.org slash morning. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief. Sarah Libby is the managing editor. Andrew Keats is assistant editor. And this show is produced by Nate Chung. <laughs>